Hi, I'm Cindy Zhang, and this is Tell Me Muse, a podcast where I interview recent McGill graduates to try to define classics. Today, I'm speaking with Marina Martin, who did an undergrad here at McGill in classics, but has since transitioned away into a different field. She's currently at Cambridge University studying urban design and architecture. So we spend the vast majority of this episode talking about vaulting tubes. I'm excited to bring you this podcast because it shows how applicable an education in classics is. I know the classics appeal to a lot of people, but many are held back from committing a full three to four years or investing a good chunk of their undergraduate degree because it feels so removed and distant that nothing you learn is ever going to be applicable or employable in the future. But I think one of the things that we highlight in this episode, which is so true and so underappreciated about a training in the classics is that the skills that you learn here are useful in a variety of ways and can be applied in a variety of fields. So a training in classics in your undergrad is not just about learning about Greek gods or Roman military techniques. As appealing as those things are, the study of classics and the training of classics to a larger degree, is about learning how to learn and how to think analytically. In classics, you learn how to set aside your biases and modern ideals of what is right and wrong, of what is just and equitable and normative when you're looking at societies in the past. To seek to understand peoples who are so different requires rigorous training. So Marina and I talk here about language training, about writing skills, all in all just learning to think in an interdisciplinary way. I hope our conversation here will be useful to those of you who might be wavering on taking a few classics courses or dedicating an entire degree to classics. And I hope that it shows that no matter what you end up doing later on in life, the skills that you learn from classics are useful and employable in not just the field of classics, but also in other fields as well. So back to Roman vaulting tubes. This was a Roman technique for making domes and making vaulted ceilings. So Marina will take us through the history of vaulting tubes, how they were used throughout the Roman provinces, in different places since the collapse of the Roman Empire, and how we might be able to integrate more environmentally friendly building materials and bring about more or less a revolution in the use of vaulting tube construction methods again, and potentially build structures with it today. So it's really a, a budding area of research into architecture, and also for those of us who are environmentally conscious, and thinking about how we can learn from past societies to build in ways that use less carbon and to make more sustainable structures. I think this will be a really useful and interesting conversation. So let's dive right in. Welcome to the podcast. I'm super happy to have you and super excited to, to finally get to speak with you. 
So you're actually at Cambridge right now studying architecture and urban studies, which is a little bit of a shift from your classics undergraduate. But before we get into all of that, could you just let us know who you are and uh, maybe give us some fun facts about yourself? Oh, boy. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Cindy. I really appreciate it. Uh, my name is Marina, and I graduated from McGill um, with a degree in classics in 2020, but I finished in December of 2019. Um, I guess some fun facts about me is I play soccer. I'm playing for the Cambridge team actually now. That's, that's probably the funnest fact about me. Um, aside from now, I'm, I'm, I've pivoted away from classics and I'm moving into um, the field of architecture and design. I was wondering if you could take us back to your McGill undergraduate experience, how you ended up at McGill and how you ended up in classics. Is this something you knew right away or was there a turning point? Uh, just talk us through all of that. So in terms of McGill, um, I really, I had applied to, I think, 18 universities or something absolutely ridiculous when I was in high school. I think it was, it was like completely by chance that I ended up at McGill and I'm so glad that I did. And in terms of classics, I did not know what classics was before I arrived, uh, like as a discipline. I applied to McGill actually to Deshotel and to arts because I, none of the other programs I'd applied to required me to apply to a specific faculty. And so I just kind of picked whatever <laughs> um, and intended to study something either like international relations, which McGill doesn't really offer, or economics. And so at McGill, I was planning to take up economics and... <laughs> immediately within the first class, I despised it. Um, but I ended up signing up for Dr. Totten's um, Intro to Classical Archaeology course as an elective. And basically, the contrast between the economics course, sorry, economics, um, and, and Totten's lecture was kind of what made me transfer into a much more humanities-based subject and eventually into classics. Yeah. And it's good that things ended up working out and you, you stuck with the classics program. I'm wondering now, because you are in a, a different department of sorts in your master's program, how did you come to make this switch? I guess you could say that there are some connections between the two fields. Like we're going to talk about, you can look at archaeology and it kind of relates to architecture to a certain degree. But when did you decide that, you know, I want to pursue something slightly different and in any way, did your classics undergraduate experience set you up for that transition or was it something completely external? That's a really good question. I think it's kind of a mix of both. So kind of independently to what I studied at McGill, I was always interested in architecture and especially sustainable design. And that was actually one of the original things that I was planning to study at university going in. But I, I literally didn't apply to the architecture school. As I, as I mentioned before, I kind of applied to McGill very like haphazardly. <laughs> If I had applied to, to architecture, that's probably what I would have done from the outset. Um, but I didn't. And so I ended up with this great humanities background, um, which I'm really, really grateful for because classics, I think, gives you such a well-rounded education. But in terms of switching to architecture for post-grad, I was thinking about going straight into a master's after my undergrad. And I applied to a few programs. And those were both for archaeology and for classics. And then I took a year out, basically, and... I realized that the elements of school that are specifically related to classics, I didn't miss that much, um, but I missed learning. And I was trying to think about how I would apply myself to kind of, because I mean, 
there are so many challenges that we're facing and going to be facing in terms of climate change in the future. And so I was trying to figure out how I could best apply my skills and hone in on more skills to, to be able to contribute to the efforts to mitigate these problems. Um, and so I figured I would try and try and pivot a little bit into architecture. But I did so with the knowledge that I think there's still a lot of value in looking back to history um, and traditional methods and um, like the archaeological data and everything because realistically, we didn't do that much damage to the planet up until the Industrial Revolution, right? <laughs> um, so it feels like there's something to be learned from kind of what past cultures were doing before. And obviously, there are problems of scale, and it's, it's much more nuanced than this. Um, but I figured it would be kind of a worthwhile thing to pursue and, and look at. Um, so that's why I made the transition to architecture. It's definitely, it speaks to how you can sort of merge an interest in the classical past with modern problems that we're facing. Um, and I think that's definitely important and something more and more classicists are going to have to confront given the job market and also just contemporary issues that we have to address if you want to be a functioning citizen in any way. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, I, and it's not to say that there's nothing to be gained from kind of having this very like liberal arts, humanities background, I think it's it's incredibly valuable. And in every room where I'm where I'm surrounded by people who have engineering and architecture backgrounds, I'm always able to offer a unique perspective. And my research skills are usually quite a bit tighter than a lot of theirs, just because um, I've done more <laughs> library-based research and everything like that. So it's actually come in handy quite a lot. And so don't don't despair if you feel like the job market in classics specifically isn't available to you or anything, or you feel like it's, oh my God, what am I doing? Am I wasting my time? No, you're never wasting your time um, when you're learning stuff. So just speaking about the value of the classics education, uh, besides just the pure research techniques that you've learned just from reading a bunch of stuff for undergrad in classics, is there anything specifically that you've learned about the classical world that has been useful for your current studies in maybe just like even highlighting the area of the ancient world that you wanted to study more about um, or facts that you can bring to the table and maybe enlighten modern architectural development, um, anything like that? I think the skills in language are incredibly valuable. Just kind of learning languages and learning to approach them like puzzles, um, but also not despairing when you get like a page of ancient Greek and being told to translate it for an exam. And I know a lot of classical scholarship too is published in different languages. And so kind of having to like navigate that early was quite helpful because now I'm reading a lot of stuff in Italian. I have to find translations of things in German because that's hopeless. But <laughs> it's just um, having that background in approaching languages and approaching because classical scholarship really is so much, especially if you're working in, in the Italian peninsula, um, so much of the scholarship is in Italian. So already having that, I've been able to adapt a lot easier than some of my peers who are used to working in a, like a single language environment, research environment. So I think that's something that I got from classics for sure. And in terms of region, I mean, we didn't have too much kind of architectural study, like classical architecture study available in the classics department. But I did take a few courses in the Faculty of Architecture as well at McGill that were open enrollment. And so some of those were kind of history and theory of architecture and reached back to the classical past and into the Renaissance and stuff. And so I find some of that information was helpful to give me a bit of a survey moving forward um, as I changed disciplines. But 
being able to read buildings is something that I really got more from archaeology. And so basically, if you look at a paleo-Christian church, right, there's going to be kind of like very clear indicators of the stratigraphy, like the time of when everything was going on, um, and the kind of various phases and changes that a building goes through. And I think that's given me a really deep appreciation for these structures. And I think that's helped me quite a lot approaching buildings from an architectural perspective now, is being able to like let the buildings tell you their story, um, rather than just kind of seeing them for what they are now, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think like the archaeological methods that you're talking about is probably really useful uh, for your research in particular, because you're looking at diachronic sort of progression of architectural elements. So in your paper, you're focusing on something called vaulting tubes, which I admit I have never heard of. So can we just start there? Can you define what these are for us, uh, what they're used for and how you came across them in the first place? Well, I guess it's it's not a very uh, pleasing narrative, but the way I came across them in the first place is I had this very general research uh, proposal that was basically like, I want to look at Roman masonry techniques and I want to bring them into like modern building styles to address the, the issues of climate change. And people were like, great, what do you mean by Roman masonry? And I was like, uh... Um, and so, and so my supervisor who, who wrote a book called Brick World History looked at me and was like, you don't know. And it was like, you're going to be working on vaulting tubes now. You should read this, this, and this. And there's this really amazing, uh, classical scholar called Lynn Lancaster. I think she's at Ohio and she, um, has such thorough research about these vaulting tubes in the Roman world and kind of touches on the Roman world and beyond. And that was kind of what inspired this first paper, which is a diachronic look at this construction technique that has kind of fallen in and out of fashion throughout the millennia, basically, which is quite cool. And so I read that information and I read a couple more articles and I was like, yes, this, this seems cool and this seems viable because it also seems like a technology that we could apply to today and might actually be helpful as we move forward with the realities of climate change for a variety of reasons. So vaulting tubes, what they are, <laughs> it's kind of in the name actually. So there are these tubes um, that basically slot together to form arches and, and kind of like chains of tubes form these arches. And those arches that are then repeated and articulate vaults. And so they're basically, the ones that I'm talking about primarily are made out of ceramic. They are nozzled on the one side and open on the other so that they fit together and are able to kind of have a little bit of articulation and rotation. Um, but some of the earlier examples aren't nozzles and they're simply tapered. So it looks almost like you're stacking cups one on top of the other and forming amazing uh, ceilings with them <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> so that's, that's basically what they are. <laughs> would a dome structure be considered a vault or would, it, would the vault yes. be the foundation of the dome? I envision domes to be vaults. Um, and that's part, of, that's part of what I'm studying as well as probably the most fascinating iterations of vaulting tubes in construction are some of the domes in late antique churches like um, San Vitale in Ravenna. It's an amazing example of the, of the technique. What is the origin for these vaults? Like, do they originate in the Italian peninsula or are you only focusing on like early Italian stuff because that's your area of expertise? Hmm. So basically what we know from the archaeological record is the first instance of vaulting tubes were found in the bath complex at Morgantina, um, actually in Sicily, 
that was as early as the third century BC. And there might still be earlier examples, but we just don't know about them because, you know, the archaeological record is as it is. And basically, the next example, I think, was in Spain. So it's clear that there is kind of a period of experimentation going on with um, hydraulic tubes, because these both seem to be related to bath complexes. So it kind of makes sense. And yeah, essentially, these were kind of used a little bit out of context. And it doesn't seem like there's any kind of contemporary examples in their geographic locations. So it seems like these are isolated somewhat and experimenting. But the kind of technique really comes to the fore in the first century AD in North Africa. So in Roman North Africa, which was responsible for so much um, agricultural production and so much ceramic production as well, it was kind of natural for these tubes to become more popular just because there was already such an um, enormous kind of ceramic production system in place. So yeah, and North Africa was kind of the perfect context for this construction technique to really blossom and become its kind of at its best form. But during that time, the purpose of it was to become permanent formwork for concrete vaults. And so some of that was for underground structures in North Africa, because, you know, it, it gets quite hot there. And so some of the structures we put underground to kind of keep it a little bit cooler, because the earth is quite a bit more insulated. So what they would do is they'd create these vaults, which are really lightweight and easy to put together out of the vaulting tubes. And then they would pour concrete over it to kind of solidify the structure. And so that was kind of the first really popular iteration of, of this technique. But the ones that fascinate me more are the later examples, because if you're thinking about sustainability in architecture, uh, you're not thinking about concrete anymore. Um, we're trying to get away from concrete. Concrete, bad. Um, so so the, the examples that I'm more focused on are the late antique versions, which become vaults in their own rights. So they're not actually formwork for concrete anymore. They themselves become the ceiling of the vault. And so they're super lightweight. So that means they don't give as much lateral thrust. So that's basically just the forces that are going down from the vault into the walls is not as extreme. So you can have thinner walls and you can have kind of more articulate, elegant buildings um, than you would with a giant concrete dome, something really, really heavy in the ceiling. You can't be as, um, can't be as creative with it. You actually mentioned in your paper that there are different types of vaults or different forms that they can take depending on where you find them in Italy or in North Africa. Can you give us some examples of the variety of the vaulting tubes that you see in archaeological remains? Sure. So I think the most interesting thing about these tubes in the Roman world is that they weren't standardized like ever. But for specific structures, you need to have somewhat standard production methods. So for something like San Vitale, which is like an enormous cathedral in the north of Italy, I think 70,000 tubes would have had to go into forming that dome. So that's, that's quite a large scale of production. Um, and so that's kind of standardized size and shape and whatever. And so that local area kind of had their own typology of tubes that was kind of mass produced. But basically um, some of the earlier tubes, it, just in the Roman world, there's an enormous degree of variability in terms of what the tubes themselves look like and the size of them. Like the tubes in Morgantina, I think the first example in um, Sicily, they didn't have a nozzle. So they like were just tapered and huge. Um, so they're completely stylistically different from their next contemporary peer, I guess. Um, and then uh, eventually, I think it was at least around the first century AD that the Romans started to develop the nozzle for the tubes, because instead of just tapering, um, the tapering is a little bit more rigid. So it doesn't kind of allow for as much broad articulation of the forms. So if you're just doing barrel vaults, that's fine. So a barrel vault is just archway, 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 and then you just extrude out the archway 
And so it just becomes a semi-cylinder kind of going across uh, the ceiling. Whereas other types of vaults like cross vaults basically have an X and then it's kind of horizontal sails going up on each side. So these are kind of more innovative forms, more interesting looking forms, and they require a little bit more articulation of the tubes. And so the nozzle kind of came into play because it allows for a lot more flexibility in the joint between the two tubes fitting together. And what gives the tubes, even because they're so flexible, what gives them the rigidity is that they're operating, sorry, this is, this is becoming engineering talk, operating in compression. Um, <laughs> so when they kind of all fit together to form their arch, they hold, the, they hold each other in place. And then you put on plaster as well to kind of really give that form some, some stability. So that's when they're able to kind of be self-supporting in construction. So that's the kind of basic typologies. Some are about 20 centimeters long, some are 15 centimeters long, uh, some are 30 centimeters long, gigantic, and don't even have a nozzle on them. These are just kind of the variability in the Roman world. And then there are even some modern examples, too, that are a bit different as well. And if we're staying within the Roman era, do we find them just in the Roman colonies? Or is this something that's more widespread across the European continent? Yeah, this is actually really interesting. So there's been a lot of different kind of find spots but not necessarily like huge caches of, of data for different areas in the Roman world. There's, there's quite a few spots in Spain where these tubes have been found, quite a few spots in Sicily, as I mentioned, North Africa, all over the place, huge, huge number of fine spots. I don't think there are many in Greece. There are a few in Slovenia. It's, it's mostly circulated around the Mediterranean. And what you see as well is in a few shipwrecks, there have been a good number of tubes kind of amongst the, uh, the wreckage. But I think scholars have posited that these weren't necessarily people importing and exporting tubes because it just, it just wouldn't make any sense because the, the scale that you need to actually build a building out of these tubes or build a ceiling out of these tubes is way too large to like bother with shipping them across the Mediterranean. So it's more likely that they were used as like ballast to keep the, to keep the ship kind of stable. Didn't do a very good job because the ship's um, sunk. But, like, <laughs> but <laughs> it's a, I guess that's just an example of them kind of adapting that technology to meet other needs. <laughs> but yeah, they also existed in the Italian peninsula too. Is, is the climate of the area also a factor in how popular they are or where you can find remains? Because if you need so much material, I'm guessing you need like a large ceramic production capacity to be able to make a vault. So does the climate of the area also act as a factor in where you find vaulting tubes? I think climate does play a role, but I think more so like topography and kind of the balance of the soil. The map of the fine spots in the Italian peninsula of these vaulting tube sites, basically, they pretty much follow exactly this like line of clay deposits. So it's these areas that have enormous amounts of like these particular minerals in the soil. So they have enormous access to this clay and it's basically even renewable, you know. So that kind of plays a big role into like, can you actually produce at the scale that you need? Yes. Um, okay, great. So do it. And <laughs> I'd say as well, there's quite a degree of climate variability as well, because there's there are examples in the UK, actually, in especially Roman, like the Roman military seems to have played a role in, in dispersing this technique, um, because they're all kind of like Roman military spots and baths that are they're used for the army. There are some vaulting tubes there. And then you have like, you have basically north of England, and then you have North Africa. So these are just kind of very like, diverse climates that both use the same kind of construction, which is cool, which means that it is adaptable. I'm excited to talk about the modern applications of vaulting tubes. But before we get there, can we talk about how 
this sort of architectural technique went in and out of style over the course of history. So you mentioned that it was popular during the Roman times, and then it sort of experienced a hiatus of sorts. It was popular until the 6th century CE, I should say, and then it sort of dipped out um, and then came back again around the 11th century. And then again, there, it was sort of a fizzle out um, and then more modern, like I think World War II, you mentioned, some of the techniques came back into use. So can you flush that out for us and take us through sort of the history of the popularity of vaulting tubes before we go into maybe why this fluctuating in and out of style uh, occurred for vaulting tubes? To be completely honest with you, the why has still kind of evaded me. And I think Lynn Lancaster offers some explanations. Nothing really convinced me. But in terms of their popularity throughout time, I guess as early as the third century BC, we knew about them, right? And then, so they may have been happening before that, but they may not. And then basically from the first to the third century CE in North Africa, they became incredibly popular. That's when kind of the first articulation of vaulting tubes as like a standardized practice kind of came about. And that, again, is just probably just due to the agricultural factors, because they're also transporting a lot of things in amphorae. There are a lot of needs for ceramics to be produced in the area. There's a lot of clay. Um, so the, the conditions are just like right for this style of building. And then along trade routes, as well as like as along basically trade routes with North Africa, you find big pockets of fine spots, especially in the Italian peninsula. So in the areas like Ravenna and even in Rome, too, you have some examples. But the late antique examples in Ravenna were like in this perfect storm of there's clay here and it's a perfect stopping point from North Africa to be delivering goods. Um, and so basically, Lynn Lancaster specifically posits that that's how the tubes came to that particular zone. After the 6th century CE, I really don't know why they fell out of fashion. There have been some uh, other dates in the late antique period given, I think the 7th and 8th centuries are also kind of being thrown around as like certain buildings in Ravenna. Um, but most of the other buildings, especially in northern Italy, were built before the 6th century when they're using vaulting tubes. However, there has been some controversial archaeological uh, study <laughs> done, <laughs> especially in Milan, which I recently uncovered. This is actually a lesson in, in um, doing research in another country that has another language of scholarship, is that I took a study that was published in English at face value without kind of looking at comparisons. And so I basically accepted the 10th and 11th century archaeometric dates given by this particular study. That data is incredibly interesting, and it completely changes what people originally thought about kind of the fate of vaulting tubes, because architectural historians, especially Italian architectural historians, believe that the 6th century, 7th century, that's it, vaulting tubes are done in Italy as a standard practice anyway. And the 10th century, 11th century dates must be wrong basically is what they're saying. There's no phase of these structures in the 10th and 11th century that used new vaulting tubes. But there are, I think, multiple archaeometric studies that have taken place that have confirmed these dates. And so it's an interesting paradox where architectural historians are choosing to ignore kind of exact dating methods on the basis of like stylistic inconsistencies and like, basically, I, I mean, it's, it's a common trope in archaeology, this like house of cards that is relative dating. And assuming that, oh no, like this conclusion like means that this is the dating of this. And then like the first domino falls and then like the entire conclusion like doesn't actually hold up at all. So that's basically what I've discovered here. So there's a little bit of a controversy as to whether or not the tubes 
kind of stopped being used in the sixth century AD in Italy, or if they continued on in a more kind of fluid way. Um, but then, I mean, there are no dates after the 10th century until at least the 19th century anyway, of specific instances in these, in these particular cathedrals that were studied. So it only bridges the gap by 400 years. And then, you know, <laughs> almost a 1500 year gap, it skips another 400 years and then it stops. And then, so, so it's just a thousand years now that we have to make up for it. Um, but it just, it's kind of a general commentary on doing this kind of research is that scholars don't necessarily agree with each other. And normally the architectural history work is published in Italian. So the English scholars are taking one thing seriously because it's published in English. And those are the archeologists and the arche archeometric data. And then the architectural historians are like choosing a different route, the art historical route. So when we see little pockets of continuity, like some of these sites that might show 10th to 11th century construction of vaulting tubes, how do you make the call as to whether this is true continuation of the original Roman vaulting tubes or perhaps like an independent discovery of sorts after maybe a gap from the 6th to 10th century? Right. That's, I think that's an interesting point. Um, I would say in a structure that already exhibited the vaulting tubes. So basically, I'll use the example of Sant'Ambrogio in Milan. So this particular chapel in Sant'Ambrogio, San Vittore. San Vittore was built in the 4th century. The 5th century phase... Um, was built a dome in vaulting tubes. Archaeometric studies undertaken in the early 2000s date those tubes from the dome to the 10th and 11th century, which is weird because then there's known in the 19th century, there's a intervention by an architectural historian or whoever that replaced the tubes. So it seems like there's this kind of patchwork situation going on in this dome that's still standing and still has its 5th century mosaic on the ceiling of it that basically it could be tubes from the 5th century, it could be tubes from the 10th century, it could be tubes from the 19th century, it could be a mix of these tubes, but the only one that we know we've gotten a date for is the 10th century tube. It's like the one in the middle. So I would say that in a structure like this, um, where you do see repeating the same technology than it would be, it would just be a continuation of the Roman design. But it gets a little bit fuzzier when you get to kind of the 20th century iterations of vaulting tubes, where it is kind of uh, and I guess with geographic diversity as well, you can kind of wonder whether or not these things are actually connected to Rome, because I know as a classicist, you have a tendency to assume like, oh, yeah, the Romans were here. This was probably the Romans that spread this technology, like possibly not. Do you know off the top of your head where some of these more recent like 19th, 20th century iterations are located? Yes. Um, so basically, World War II brought about a revival of this technique in Europe because of a dearth of other materials like wood or steel or concrete after wartime. Um, and so ceramics were like easier to produce, lightweight materials, they, they're kind of low uh, skill in production. Like you don't really need to be a skilled <laughs> builder <laughs> to put them together because you literally just like fitting cups together. <laughs> um, and uh, basically around this time, just before the war, there's a guy called Jacques Couel, who's um, a French architect basically revives this vaulting tube idea in the creation of fusée ceramique. It's basically the exact same design as the Roman vaulting tubes. And so he's brought up in the context of Marseille. And Marseille is kind of related to the Roman Empire. There's so many, not only underwater fine spots, but also all around that part of the south of France, there were all these fine spots for vaulting tubes. He himself was kind of an amateur archaeologist and like lover of the classical past. So I kind of feel like this is more 
a reinterpretation of the Roman design versus something entirely new. But he also claims to have been inspired by the way that the different joints in bamboo appear to fit into one another. So there's kind of a biomorphic element in this as well. Um, but I, I mean, my suspicion is that he saw some, some Roman vaulting tubes and thought, okay, I'm going to patent this. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and then it became incredibly popular after World War II. So it was, it was popular. Actually, the Germans took it up to build kind of temporary shelters, um, even in some concentration camps, unfortunately. So there's basically scattered around, and there's a few examples in Germany, but those have been demolished or have fallen into ruin or become museums because they represent something larger than the tubes. Um, <laughs> and the examples in the Netherlands have largely been demolished as well. And I don't think it's for structural reasons. I think it's just because they weren't meeting the design needs of the 20th century because there was a huge trend, especially with some of the some of the famous modern architects of the time, to look towards steel and concrete and glass and all these kinds of structures that masonry and ceramics specifically don't really fit into. So it, they might have been demolished literally because they, they don't fit the aesthetic needs of the society anymore. And then I think in terms of the Indian examples, there is an amazing rural housing knowledge network online. There's another iteration of this style of building that I believe to actually be independent of the Roman design, but it's just an, it's an, it's an interesting window into what this can look like in modern context. It basically seems to have emerged around like the mid 20th century, but it's tapered burnt clay tubes that are open on the one end and open on the other end, not nozzled, but they just kind of slide into one another. Super, super simple. They hardly even have to be molded. They can literally be made by hand on a wheel in no time at all. So they don't actually have to be like mass produced. They're like handmade and then just like put into, <laughs> put into these vaults there. There's amazing, uh, there's, I think a university campus that's like with a performing center or something with the, the tubes kind of very clearly visible in the ceiling and everything like that. It's, it's actually been quite widely used in India, which is very cool, but then it kind of fell out of fashion in the nineties and nobody really knows why, except that steel and concrete were popular. <laughs> It's always hard to trace the reasons behind like changes in taste and style. I, I don't know if there's any physical evidence we can look to for that ever, really. So I think this is a good transition for us to talk about what you see as the future for vaulting tubes, or perhaps hope to see as the future comeback of vaulting tubes. What are some of the benefits that they hold over these other like carbon-heavy building materials? And do you really see any feasible way for us to bring back vaulting tubes into also what kinds of communities? I'm just really throwing questions here. You don't have to answer all of them, but I'm thinking now, like, is this more of a rural thing? Can we build entire urban cities with a vaulting tube constructions? Like these kinds of ideas. Feel free to just take this anywhere you want to go. Sure. I think what's exciting about this is there's a lot of different avenues to look at when it comes to seeing this, this technique in the future. Um, and I guess in terms of rural versus urban or what context, I mean, the variety of constructions that we've seen with this method throughout time. So from things at large scale, like uh, San Vitale Cathedral, right? Amazing, huge dome that stood for 1500 years. That is kind of like at an urban scale in my mind. And then you have long scale barrel vaults that were used as like airplane hangers. So these are kind of like large scale urban structures that the tubes have been used for and performed pretty well. On the other hand, you have this very self-sufficiency oriented do-it-yourself rural housing knowledge network in India 
that basically allows you to receive the tubes and an instruction booklet and you can build your own house. And these houses are allowing for a greater thermal comfort because of the insulation provided um, and just the, the nature of the, of the vaults themselves. And they allow for kind of greater dignity in terms of these like poorer rural populations that might not have access to adequate housing until they receive these tubes. The amazing part of it is that it can be used at public scale and then it can also be very, very applicable to do it yourself low intensity domestic sphere houses as well, which is quite cool. In the examples from India and the burnt clay tubes method, those are incredibly economical, especially compared with like steel and concrete construction for houses. In his PhD dissertation, a student actually from Cambridge highlights this and basically does a cost analysis breakdown of all the different methods of, of building that you can do for like a particular span. And burnt clay tubes was by far one of the most um, cost-effective methods, which is really, really cool because it also combines this element of natural materials and the labor as well. Like if, if you can do your own labor, that kind of takes a lot of the cost out of it. And in these new designs, are you looking more so towards the original Roman design or in the more recent 19th, 20th century renditions? You speak in your paper a little bit about this existing paradox wherein we think that the more modern something is, the better it is, whereas that may not always be the case. Could you break that down for us a little bit here? Yeah, I think one of the main things I noticed when I was writing this paper, um, as you mentioned, is this like paradox between, uh, so especially some of the scholars that discuss the um, European examples their focus is, oh, well, what if we emulate this particular style, the, the 20th century style? Um, meanwhile, all those examples have pretty much been demolished. So those examples we could consider, despite the fact that they were within the last hundred years, those are more archaeological than the extant Roman examples, which are 1500 years old. So there's kind of a tendency to focus on the things from the more recent past and ignore as something completely far away from us, the structures that have been proven to <laughs> to remain <laughs> and obviously there's constant care going into them and they've been really uh cared for over time but at the same time there's something bizarre that we consider that to be archaeology you know a roman church that's still up um <laughs> when we consider when we consider literally a 20th century cathedral that was demolished a modern building i wanted to ask as a closing of sorts what classics means to you, especially also from a more removed perspective, uh, maybe looking back at your undergrad experience, what the entire field really means? I think, I mean, I think, as I said earlier, like the classics uh, as a discipline is something I'm really, really indebted to and really grateful for um, having been able to study because it gives you, it gives you the skills to tackle languages. It gives you the skills to analyze history. It gives you the skills to like write on your own, obviously. You can engage with anything basically through this lens of, of the classical world. Like you can engage in economics if you want, thumbs down. Um, you can engage in you know, political science, philosophy, like all these amazing kind of things that actually do teach you how to think as a person um, going forward. So that's what classics kind of is to me. It's this amazing shared cultural past, but at the same time, it represents like a way of thinking that I can take forward with me whatever I end up doing. So that, that I think is the case for classics in a modern education is <laughs> like, is you can specialize in whatever you want afterwards, um, knowing that you'll have the ability to adapt and knowing that you'll be able to kind of use this knowledge. And a lot of academic vocabulary as well relies on classical 
uh, references and everything that I would have been completely in the dark about if I hadn't done a classics degree. So that helps as well. It's really reassuring to hear this, especially since you've very successfully transitioned into another field that, you know, like the classics undergraduate education sets you up pretty well, no matter what you want to do afterwards, and you're not wasting your time um, studying the classics. So that about concludes the interview. So thank you so much for your time and talk soon. Thank you so much, Cindy, for having me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> You've been listening to my conversation with Marina Martin on Roman vaulting tubes and potential ways we can adapt Roman masonry techniques to build more environmentally friendly structures. Tune in next time for my conversation with Sasha Bogosian about memory creation and the destruction of monuments in the Caucasus. Cover art for the podcast was made by Taya Kendall, music by Matthew Hawkins. The podcast is produced with help from funds from the Arts Undergraduate Society and the Financial Management Committee at McGill University. And we also thank McGill Campus Radio, CKUT, for the use of their equipment and recording studio. Until next time, I'm Cindy Zhang, and thank you for listening to Tell Me Muse.